to Sprott Radio. I'm your host, Ed Coyne, Senior Managing Partner at Sprott. With me today is a returning guest, Paul Wong, CFA and Market Strategist at Sprott. Paul, thank you for joining Sprott Radio. Thank you, Ed. Paul, in your most recent report, you look at what to look out for in 2023. You break down the year in three parts with 10 total themes. I thought this was a perfect way to kick off the year and have our listeners really dive in to what maybe this year and, and beyond this year could potentially bring to, to our investors um, as relates to precious metals, real assets, and energy transition materials. Let's dive right into part A with the macroeconomic changes you're seeing um, and, and what those themes actually are. For the last 30 years until probably 21, 2021, we've been going through the great demoderation, basically whole markets marked by low inflation, stable low economic growth, low macro volatility, you know, relative to what we've seen in prior uh, decades, if not centuries, a very anomalous period. But the point is that most investors today, that's, that's all they ever known. And even more so, you know, modern markets as we know it now in the last 12 years or so since the great financial crisis, it's been dominated by machines, algos, quants, and they, everything that they run have all been calibrated geared towards this low volatility, low inflation, you know, highly stable markets. And what we're seeing is that that period is, seems to be coming to an end. Just for a little reference, early 90s, the fall of the Soviet Union, that sets off a, a number of things. One is the you know, Soviet Union at that time was you know, the greatest producers of almost all commodities. And I remember as a resource fund manager, when the Soviet Union fell, it was just seemingly like an endless supply of commodities coming out of Russia for years and years on, as far as I could remember. And then in the early 2000s, China joins the WTO, creating a source of cheap labor. And combined with Russia providing cheap commodities, you know, we, we had you know, this incredible, stable globalization of continuing economic growth that seems to be now coming to an end very, very quickly. And so what we're seeing now is that deglobalization is basic return of the more of the volatility, macro volatility. And that's probably something most investors are probably not thinking about. Really, it's been almost 30 years since we've seen these high levels of macro volatility. You bring up a really fascinating point, which is going through that, we all kind of know what the market looked like over the last couple of decades. What do you potentially anticipate that meaning for precious metals and real assets in general, as this happens over the next, say, decade or two. It's another commodity super cycle. If you compare prior super cycles of commodities, like the 70s, well known, that was mostly supply driven. You know, OPEC oil crisis you know, sets off you know, supply shortages. In the 2000s, China comes on the scene, it becomes eventually the second largest global economy, all driven by you know, demand for commodities. As they build out literally their entire infrastructure in terms of cities, in terms of export capacity, and that required immense amounts of commodities. There's probably nothing comparable to that, probably until what we're seeing right now, and that's the energy transition side of the story. So what we're seeing now in the oil market, it's, it's a long, gradual process. Oil markets, number one, are, are exceptionally tight. Uh, there is really very limited growth. Demand continues to climb basic as global economies continue to ramp up. But what we're seeing is the oil flows, especially 
involving China has changed dramatically. We've seen things like uh, U.S. sanctions on Russia, Venezuela, and Iran. Those three countries account for up to 40% of the proven reserves globally. And those oil production are now flowing towards China at fairly steep discount to pricing. China is also making great inroads with the Gulf Cooperations Council. That's the there's about six Gulf producing oil states, including Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE. They account for another 40% of global oil reserves. And so what we're seeing is the oil flows are starting to recalibrate. You know, they're being priced in, in Chinese yuan or renminbi and less and less in U.S. dollars. And so that sets up a situation where leading to the energy transition story side is that, number one, oil markets are becoming more dominated by China. And as the U.S. and the West heads towards a, an ec- economic war with China, it becomes relatively un- untenable. Well, and I think it's interesting you bring up oil because so often people think, well, we're going to go from oil and gas to batteries, and it's going to be a super smooth transition. It's going to happen overnight. The reality is we need everything, and we're going to need everything for a very long time. And we're going to have third world countries and modern economies still using oil, using gas and so forth for many years to come. So this is not an overnight change. So I think that dynamic is something that people need to pay probably a little more attention to than maybe they are right now in the broader marketplace. I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that. It doesn't happen quite that smoothly, quite that quickly. No, this is a decades-long process. It won't happen overnight. We're probably in the very early innings. And things will change, so it'll keep developing. You know, you've mentioned the energy transition materials, and that really brings us to really part B of your most recent report, talking about energy transition materials, specifically uranium, copper, and lithium. I think it'd be useful for our listeners for you to sort of give us a few talking points or your views on all three of those metals as it relates to what's going on in those spaces, what potential returns could we see in those spaces, and, and where might we see opportunities today and going forward in uranium, copper, and lithium? Sure. Nuclear power in the States is about 20% of power generation, so it's, it's already here. But what we're seeing in the West is that it provides the element of national security that oil can't. You know, oil is, you know, we know it's shipped around the world, you know, there's bottlenecks everywhere. In terms of the straits that, you know, where you can block oil shipments, wars can encumber pipelines. So uranium can be a very stable, reliable source of energy. Obviously, it's clean. It's really the only really super low carbon producing fuel source that's able to provide base load energy generation. But it's the national security aspect of it that really comes home. And probably more so than anywhere else is, you know, what we saw in the EU. I mean, the EU escaped the uh, uh, those potential energy squeeze in the winter, but it's been avoided with the warm winter. So they avoided that. But even then, uh, there's been a lot of rolling crises going through the EU, and you can sort of pin it back to security of of energy. And until you get a secure energy supply, it's very, very hard to really have full national security. And there's no way to run a country when you're just hoping that the winter is more mild than you anticipate. That's not... That doesn't give you a lot of security and a lot of comfort. So dodging a bullet in the short term is not a long-term solution. Let's talk about copper because I think copper is really interesting. It's kind of the evergreen metal, as I like to think of it. It's obviously a metal we've been using forever um, between homes and cars and, and, and everything. And it's yet becoming even more popular, more prevalent as we go into more modern technology and energy transition materials. So it really 
it really has multiple personalities as it relates to how it can be used. Talk a little bit about copper and, and what's its future as we go into this energy transition environment. Sure. Well, for energy systems, electric vehicles will require almost three times the amount of copper as a, as a gasoline, current back gasoline power car. Jurisdictions everywhere around the world are starting to legislate out gasoline uh, power cars you know, between now and the next uh, 10 to 12 years. Renewable energy systems are even more copper intensive. They're about five to seven times the amount of copper. But the big copper story really is supply. It's, it's the complete lack of supply. In the last 10 years or so, there's been very chronic underinvestment in uh, copper. Any copper companies through ESG pressures, you know, they're forced to basically not spend as much money as necessary to build up new mines corporately because of the massive outperformance of the tech stocks. You know, copper companies, again, you know, instead of spending money on building you know, new mine supplies, they increase dividends and they, they did share buybacks with the capital rather than build up supplies. You do that over a decade, that really starts to catch up on you. And then when you meet a supply shock, you get in a situation where we are right now. There's just simply not enough copper to go around. Uh, copper mines, any new mine will take at least 10 years to come on production. You know, the story is basically chronic shortages, and that will translate to higher prices. It's just natural. It's going to be interesting to see how this actually happens. The last one I want to talk about today, there's, there's clearly lots of other metals that go into battery technology. But from an investor standpoint, the, you know, the uranium on the energy side and copper and lithium um, on the battery technology side, that's the one that probably most investors are most familiar with by name. What are you thinking is going to happen in the lithium market over the next three to five years or next decade or two as we continue to go down this cycle? Well, to satisfy the estimated uh, demand from vehicles, so you know, just using car batteries, just car batteries themselves, you're talking about demand up to 3 million metric tons. So from where we are right now, that's about a little over 22% per annum growth per year until 2030. You compare that with a sure metal, which is 3%, so roughly you know, global GDP type numbers. That's the kind of demand you're looking at. Currently, right now, there's just no substitute for lithium and ions. It's just, there, there are some exotic uh, designs and you know theories, but practically it's just, it's just not there. You know, we're going to be running with lithium ion batteries for at least the next several years, assuming no miracle breakthrough in battery technology. There's a price chart of uh, lithium in, in a report, and you can see it's, you know, it's gone up almost six, seven fold in, from late 21. And a lot of that has to do with the understanding that, okay, there's going to be massive shortages of lithium for the next little while. Been around long enough to know that every time we've seen a, a supply shortage, production never, ever comes on as quickly as people think it will. Mining is really difficult. It's exceptionally difficult. There's a lot of challenges. One thing we do point out is, you know, China is absolutely dominant in terms of the, uh, in the, in the midstream portion of the uh, supply chain for lithium. As in terms of national security, you know, if you're at economic war with your biggest competitor, then you really can't have you know, that kind of level of dominance by China. You're going to have to reshore a lot of that midstream activity into friendlier and closer hands. And so from a performance standpoint, it seems to me just on a pure supply demand equation that really, I mean, uranium, copper and lithium, as well as other metals, but really those three metals in particular are really setting themselves up. I mean, the 3 million metric ton 
stat at 22% annual growth for the next decade is kind of mind-boggling. I guess in general, what's your overall view potentially on the performance outlook of, of these metals over the next, say, call it three to five years as this super cycle continues to uh, gain momentum? You know, if you go back and look at uh, commodity prices over very long term on a super cycle, they have an S shape. So it starts off slow and then it goes into a really high ramp up phase and then eventually the prices slow down, kind of reminiscent of an, of an S. And, you know, as, as shockingly high as uh, lithium has gone up, you can argue you're still in the very early portion of that S. So can it go higher? Oh, yes, it can definitely go higher. Can something happen geopolitically to drive it higher? Absolutely. Can you know future supply bottlenecks happen? Yeah, absolutely. It's, that's typical of what we see in every commodity a cycle. When demand starts to pick up, there's always supply bottlenecks. And again, I come back to the point. It's been well over a decade of um, chronic underinvestment. You're, you're not going to be able to turn on going. That's That's the bottom line. We saw what happened with um, iron ore in the 2000s when China came on the scene. If I remember correctly, in the late 90s, iron ore was about under $20 a ton. And then China announces they're going to build 30 megacities. They actually did, which is incredible. Concrete, steel, iron ore, you need iron ore, you haven't met cold. So iron ore goes up to $400 a ton. Again, these are bulk commodities, and that was a 20-fold increase in pricing. I can't say we're going to see a 20-fold increase in pricing on these commodities, but directionally you're there. And again, iron ore had that S-shaped curve to it as well, the pricing structure. Well, if anyone wants to look at what kind of pain this can cause for the consumer, you only have to look at, in a very microcosm way, the prices of timber and cement over the last couple of years and what that meant for economies and building and so forth. So you can imagine something like this that's global and global demand you got to believe the prices are going to continue to be interesting and attractive to look at uh, for, for many years to come. We'd be remiss if we didn't cover Part C, which is really the history of Sprott as a firm. You know, we, we've really had decades worth of experience in pure precious metals, predominantly gold and silver. And we've really started to build out our network within the energy transition materials. Talk about precious metals in general and specifically gold and silver and start with 2022, uh, what happened there and what do you think potentially could happen going forward? Sure. 2022, ultimately, we end up, uh, gold ended up being flat for the year. And that's despite the greatest, uh, fastest Fed rate hike in 40 years. Much expectations that, you know, gold would suffer. It did, you know, short term, we saw the influence of trading funds. And that was the source of most of the pressure on precious metals. And, and typically, when you see, Strong buying out of uh, central banks, out of countries such as China and India, holding steady, buying on, on weaknesses. Those are the long-term buyers. And you, you kind of know that once the short-term investment flows or, or sellers reach an exhaustion point, then typically you're not going to see much lower prices. You'll see a squeeze up. And that's, that's what we saw into the year. Uh, in terms of CFTC gold positioning, shorts, you know, they ran up to, I think, 95 percentile in the last 10 years, near as high as they could take it. Longs got down to about uh, less than uh, less than about 5 percent of the lows, meaning that their longs were about as low as they could take. You can't really you know, can't go to zero, but you get darn close to it. And so you, you kind of knew that uh, you're, you, you reached uh, selling exhaustion. So. Typically, that's when you start to think about, okay, when, when do prices realize the low? 
And the trigger basically was the Fed intimating that aggressive rate hike portion was over. And then you had slightly better CPI numbers, and that catalyzed the, the short squeeze in gold. Took it from just below 1650 you know, up to 1750 pretty quickly. And then after that, we saw massive amounts of buying out of China in the last months of 2022 and into the first week of 23. And it's been unrelenting. Those are massive amounts of, uh, of gold. The data we're seeing or the rough gas we're seeing is somewhere between you know, three to 400 uh, tons of gold. Well, I remember this time last year, a lot of the kind of quote unquote smart money on the street was calling for 1300 gold. With rates going up, the old wisdom is rising rates, strengthening dollar, dropping gold. And it's amazing to me that gold has stayed as strong as it has. And I always like to say it's a relative asset. It did very well last year relative to all the other assets out there, whether it's the S&P, the NASDAQ, even the Dow, um, which held up a little bit better than the other assets. It's interesting to see that it continues to do its job over multiple market cycles. And, and last year was no exception. And to your point, it's, it's off to quite a nice start in 2023. Let's shift gears for a second and talk about silver, right? Because silver sort of lives in two worlds. It's a monetary metal to some degree, much like gold. But more importantly, it's being used more and more in the energy transition markets, right? So silver really has multiple uses and, and multiple values. And I guess ultimately that means multiple opportunities. Talk, talk a bit about silver and, and what you're seeing there and, and what the outlook may be for silver going forward. Sure. Okay. So we saw the uh, sell off in the summertime in silver, and that was really retail selling. If you look at silver ounces held in ETFs, and you compare that a chart with um, speculative investments, it's retail selling. And retail selling was because mainly they were getting you know, heard on their other speculative assets. And so in the summertime, we saw a rough equivalent of 800 million ounces sold. Works at about 50% of total CFTC and ETF positioning. But silver held and held support. And since then, it's been bouncing back strongly. We saw really strong buying again out of China into the last months of, of 2000. CFTC positioning has now turned around and we're, we're seeing silver heading back up to uh, resistance channel. There's a big, long consolidation channel that's been in place since 2020. And eventually we see it breaking out. You know, obviously, silver has a very intense correlation with the gold. You know, last 40 years, it has about an 84% correlation, but it reached you know, a one percentile hold ratio in terms of the silver to gold ratio. So whenever you see something 84% correlation, one percentile reading, you should get really interested. We're seeing a sharp rebound in the, in the silver gold ratio. And as uh, investment returns back to that, you can see silver actually outperform gold. We're pretty bullish on gold. I would call, on a trading perspective, it's a clean setup. That's kind of terminology I use on it. Last but not least, let's just talk for a moment about the miners. So often, investors think, well, if I'm going to invest in, in metals in general, I just want torque to the metal price. I'm going to own the miners. But as I remind people, they're very different investments. One's effectively particularly as it relates to gold, is a risk-off trade where the miners can be much more of an opportunistic risk-on type of trade. Spend a few minutes wrapping up this podcast talking about the miners and how investors should think about the miners going forward. So the miners were, as, as equities, they were hyper-correlations. So it's a common feature when you have extreme high volatility, low liquidity, and you get these intense moments where everything just becomes 
correlated. And we, we saw that uh, in the chart I show, you know, the miners reaching that uh, trend line that attaches back to the t- March 2020 lows. It's that capitulation type sell-off. It likes silver. It, it tends to be more sentiment-driven just because for a number of reasons. But number one is probably liquidity. Again, if liquidity and volatility go hand in hand. The miners are now starting to go up in terms of re- reverting to the mean terms of valuation. They're escaping that tense uh, correlation grasp that it had. I, I put a little chart on a little table in the report, basically showing that you know as you know the Q4 returns, the gold miners they were up over 21 percent in the quarter. You think of like a big beach ball being held underwater. You're holding it, holding it down. All of a sudden, you release it, and boom, it gets back to valuation. So. That's sort of gold miners. It's kind of been you know, released from that extreme grip it has with you know, the rest of the market. It can now lock itself with you know, gold fundamentals rather than market flows, general market flows. So you're liking, if I hear you correctly, then you're liking the miners at this point and going forward. Yes. Pretty much all precious metals, commodities. I started my career at the end of a commodity super cycle when I became a geologist out of school. That was bad timing on my part. <laughs> And I've seen a few since then, and it, I guess there's a few commonalities. One, it all starts, and it's it's, it's never one big signal. It tends to be a, a, you know, a mass of little signals. You have wide disbelief. When China came on the scene, no one believed that China could do what it said it was, it was going to do, and it, and it actually happened way faster than I thought. People tend to underestimate how much damage you do to your supply and your supply chains when you underinvest in commodities because it is a capital-intensive industry. And when you don't provide capital, things fall apart. Those two go hand in hand. But the difference this time is it's demand shock from deglobalization, hot wars, cold wars, economic wars. We're seeing an economic war and a hot war. We're seeing an energy transition, existential quest to remove yourself from you know, carbon-producing energy sources. Don't really see analogy for that in the prior cycle. So this this is why it's different. It has a lot of components of the past. Supply shock. You know, Russia, world's largest producer of you know one of the largest producers of almost any commodity you can think of now, basically shut off from from Western supply. Underinvestment more so than any other prior cycle I can remember, meaning demand shock of a different nature that I can remember from any other prior cycle. Well, Paul, this is this is fascinating. You know, for our listeners out there, I would just tell you, uh, we're seeing more and more institutional interest in the space. I've been at Sprott now for a little over seven years. And to your point, the world's kind of waking up to this opportunity. And it does feel like we're still in the very, very early stages of that. And we'll continue to try to inform those um, on what we're seeing out there. And and Paul, thank you for sharing what you're seeing as well. You do a nice job every month with your monthly report. And and for those that want to to learn more about Sprott, you can certainly visit us at Sprott.com, which is S-P-R-O-T-T.com, where you can view Paul's latest report as well as sign up for future reports. Paul does this every month. And he talks about what's going on in the market, gives a lot of factual reports on just what the numbers are, but also some opinions on where we think things may be headed. So I think you would enjoy reading that if you have further interest in learning more about this space. Once again, I'm Ed Coyne, and and thank you for listening to Sprout Radio.
podcast is provided for information purposes only from sources believed to be reliable. However, Sprout does not warrant its completeness or accuracy. Any opinions and estimates constitute our judgment as of the date of this material and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This communication is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument. Any opinions and recommendations herein do not take into account individual client circumstances, objectives or needs and are not intended as recommendations of particular securities, financial instruments or strategies. You must make your own independent decisions regarding any securities, financial instruments or strategies mentioned or related to the information herein. This communication may not be redistributed or retransmitted in whole or in part or in any form or manner without the express written consent of Sprott. Any unauthorized use or disclosure is prohibited. Receipt and review of this information constitutes your agreement not to redistribute or retransmit the contents and information contained in this communication without first obtaining express permission from an authorized officer of Sprott.